So verse 9 picks up this way. And one of the seven angels, 21.9, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here, I shall show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now, the bride image in the Bible, we saw a marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. And we know that we are called in Ephesians 5, if you look at, or just write down verses 25 through 33, we are called the bride of Christ. And it's an incredible thought to think that we are in that kind of relationship with the Lord. That he loved us that much. That passage says, husbands, love your wives As Christ loved the church, and what did he do? He gave himself up for her. The only reason we have Revelation 21 and this incredible place that we're going to be part of is because our groom gave up himself for us. He died that we may live. The entrance price to this city is the blood of Christ. Your ticket's been paid for in full. What you must do is receive it as a gift. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by works. Not by works. So that what? No one should boast. No boasting when you end up in this place. The only thing we're going to boast in is Jesus Christ and what he did for us. This new place uh, is connected to the wife, the Lamb of God. I will show you the bride the wife of the lamb. Just like the harlot is associated with Babylon, as we'll look at in a moment, back in Revelation 17, so the bride is associated with the new Jerusalem. And the two intersect. Babylon, the city of man, if you will, reflects the harlot. She lives for that which is passing pleasure. She lives for that which is going to perish, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. But the wife of the lamb is living for what is eternal. And the book of Revelation, if you reflect back on it, is written to the churches, namely seven churches, but not just the seven churches in 2 and 3, Revelation 2 and 3, but all the churches for all time. And what's the message? Hang in there. Live for what is going to last. Don't live for what is just temporal, temporary. So Revelation is giving you a view of the end of the story so you can hang on now. Amen? Amen. Since you know what's ahead of you, you can live in the light of eternity knowing that the temporary sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come. As we look not to the things which are seen but the things which are unseen. The things which are seen are temporal. Everything we see now, I got news for you, it's all going to be replaced or minimally renovated. It's going to be new. New heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, new you. Pretty cool, huh? Resurrected body. New look, maybe a new hairdo. I don't know. Come on. Anyway. And in this place, it's interesting that uh, in Revelation 22, the tree of life is mentioned four times in Revelation, but it's mentioned three times in Revelation 22. Just look ahead for a second. Revelation 22, 2 says, In the middle of its street, continuing to describe this new Jerusalem, and on either side of the river was the tree of what? The tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit. 
And we'll come back to that in a second, but here's the point. When scholars say that the New Jerusalem is Eden restored, one of the evidences that we have of that is that the tree of life reappears in the New Jerusalem. Now, what exactly does that mean? What does that look like? Well, it does say that the tree of life is for the healing of the nations. And will that be for others outside of the church? Will that be for us in the church? I don't know for sure. But this, these are aspects. And there are some that they look at the Garden of Eden. And they say that the Garden of Eden was the original temple of God. For example, it was oriented eastward. It seems like it may have just had one entrance point because when Adam and Eve sin and get kicked out of the garden, remember that there are angels and there's that turning sword and it bars their way. They can't get back in. And in that place, in the Garden of Eden, the special blessing of it all, not just the garden itself, which I'm sure was beautiful, is the presence of Almighty God. He was walking in the cool of the day. And it would appear that in Genesis prior to the fall, Adam and Eve had daily direct fellowship with God and they looked upon his face. And when they fell to sin, they were kicked out of the garden. And some believe that you can argue that they were kicked out of the original temple. There are indications that this, this garden place may have been the direct dwelling of God. It may have been his dwelling place in the early days prior to the fall. And then when sin enters in, they're banned from that holy place. They can't be there anymore. They can't look upon God because sin makes what? Sin separates you from God. So they get banished. God gives some, you know, he, he uh, covers them. And then the whole rest of the Bible is really about the hope of a coming redeemer who can give us access back to God. This new city, this new Jerusalem is just that. It is a place where we are back where we were supposed to be in the beginning. We're back in that place where we have fellowship with God. As John continues to look at the future, remember that he's been banished to the Isle of Patmos. And if the book was written around AD 95, Jerusalem is in ruins right now. John's an old man. He saw Jesus die on the cross. And so think about John. Just put yourself in his sandals for a second. Think about how thrilled he must be as he sees images of a new Jerusalem, as he sees images of a city of hope and incredible colors and all of this. Well, that's what John is describing. One of the seven angels, verse 9, who had the seven bulls, full of the seven last plagues, tells him he's going to show him the bride, the wife of the lamb. If you skip back to uh, Revelation 17, there's a contrast, a teaching contrast, which you'll see with Babylon. Revelation 17, one, just remember the language I just read and read along with me. One of the seven angels, 17, one, who had the seven bulls came and spoke with me saying, come here and I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot. That same angel said, come here and I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. But here in 17, he says, come here and I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot. I'll show you her end and I'll show you the bride's future. Which camp do you want to be in? You want to have her end or do you want to have the bride's future? That's the choice that we have. In verse 3 of Revelation 17, he carried me away in the spirit 
into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. If you turn back to Revelation 21, Revelation 21, he carries me away in the spirit, and instead of seeing this woman in the desert, 21.10, he carried me away in the spirit, says John, and I was carried to a great and what? A great and high mountain. Those who have done some study on comparing the New Jerusalem to ancient Eden, the Garden of Eden, say that rivers were flowing out of Eden, and some believe that maybe Eden was up on a mountain. We don't know for sure, uh, because the whole area was obliterated when there was a worldwide flood. So you may have seen some teaching where people are prognosticating or coming up with ideas that maybe Eden was actually in Jerusalem, or maybe it was here or there. We don't know for sure. But we do know that rivers flowed out of Eden, a river, and then it connected to four rivers. And so this, this mountain is shown, and uh, John is invited to take a look at the new home of the bride of Christ. In Revelation twenty two seventeen, we saw the spirit and the bride inviting people to come. And now we are told about the wife of the lamb. In Ephesians 2, 7, it says, in the ages to come, he's going to be showing us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And John says, he carried me away in the spirit, 21.10, to a great and high mountain. He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. Notice, it was coming down out of heaven from who? It's from God. Jesus said, I go and prepare what? A place for you. Could it be that Jesus' reference there was to the new Jerusalem, which eventually comes down out of heaven from God? Interesting thought. Sometimes when we think about what Jesus said in John 14, we think about heaven and maybe he's preparing our mansion in heaven. But we've already said that our future dwelling place, and we've looked at the millennial reign of Christ, seems to be a new earth. So your mansion may more be down here than it is up there. And I just, been, I just would ask you the question, what kingdom again are you living for? So many people are living to get a mansion here that eventually they're just going to hand over to somebody else anyway. That's what Solomon decried in the book of Ecclesiastes. He said, you work hard for all this stuff and then you give it to somebody else and you don't know what they're going to do with it. I'm very protective of some of my possessions, like my Harley-Davidson motorcycle. There is a perimeter around it with warnings of death. But, just kidding. I was a little bit more serious when I first got it. But now, as the garage gets more and more stuff, the Harley is being squeezed. It's just wrong. But anyway, it's life in a fallen world. (laughs) What can you do? In the book of Ezekiel, you guys are familiar with the fact that Ezekiel 38 and 39 give us this end time scenario. Within it is the battle of Armageddon. In Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, uh, Ezekiel is shown something called, many believe, a millennial temple. Just write this down for your notes. In Ezekiel 40 verse 2, at the start of that revelation, Ezekiel says, In the visions of God, he brought me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. And on it to the south, there was a structure like a city. You remember that um, it says that Eden was oriented eastward and the temple area 
in, uh, when you go to Jerusalem, if you get a chance to go or you've been there, you know that there's an eastern gate and the temple was oriented towards the Mount of Olives. And so this is interesting just to kind of draw parallels between the tabernacle, the later temple, and the Garden of Eden. And of course, the main thing is the dwelling of God. In the book of Isaiah, if you flip over to Isaiah chapter 2, we've been looking at some millennial prophecies, that is prophecies that foreshadow the coming of the Messiah and his rule. And looking at this high mountain, it says this, Isaiah 2, 1, Isaiah 2, verse 1, the word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. He was a seer, so as a prophet, he saw this. Now it will come about, Isaiah 2, 2, in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. In other prophecies in Isaiah, it says, they will not hurt in all my holy mountain. And so today, if you uh, examine the, um, the, the plot of land on which the Temple Mount sit, sits, it's called Mount, do you remember? Mount Moriah. It is a mountain. There's actually several things connected to it, which, which are other hills. The book of Joel uh, has similar teaching. It says, Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. That's Joel 3.17. A little later in Isaiah 60, flip all the way over to Isaiah 60, it's talking about the gates, which we're going to read about in a second. And we're even going to read about the pearly gates. And we'll see who actually sits at the pearly gates. It's not Peter, by the way. The Bible doesn't say that Peter's sitting at a table at the pearly gates with just a couple of questions to see if you can get in. You know, you heard of the story about the, I think it's the, the husband and wife, and they both die, and they had some issues before, you know, they, they both came to their demise, and the wife comes to the desk, and uh, Peter's there, and he says, you just need to spell one word to get into heaven. And she says, what is it? And he says, love. And she says, L-O-V-E. And he says, you're in. Oh, wait a minute. I need a favor. Can you sit at this desk? I got to do a couple errands. I'll be back in a little bit. Just, just take over, kind of do what I did. And so all of a sudden, her ex-husband pops up at the pearly gates. And she said, oh, wow, shocking to see you. Uh, I just have one question for you. You just have to spell one word and you can get into heaven. He says, what is it? She says, Czechoslovakia. <laughs> anyway, Isaiah 60, verse 11. And your, <laughs> and your gates will be open continually, 60, 11. They will not be closed day or night so that men may bring to you, may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nations and the kingdom which will not serve you will perish, and the nations will utterly be ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the box tree, and the cypress together to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I shall make the place of my feet glorious. And the sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you, and all those who despise you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet, and they will call you, they will call you, note it, the city of the Lord, 
the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. This new place is coming down, Revelation back there to 21, from God. It's been prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's, there's been a lot of care, a lot of preparation, a lot of detail as a bride gets ready for her wedding day. And the descriptors of the city are quite incredible. In verse 11, John breaks into some of the descriptions. The city has the glory of God. That's the main attraction of the city. It has the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, a stone of crystal clear jasper. So as I mentioned, Babylon's gold and silver perishes, but this city remains a stone of crystal clear jasper. The best way to describe this is that John is likening what he sees to the brilliance of a diamond. This description was used earlier to describe the glory of God, and it is used here because the city's brilliance comes from God himself. The city sparkles with the glory of God. If you remember back to Revelation 4 and 5, when John was telling us about the throne room of God and the one seated on the throne... He began to explain the shining, the flashing facets of the glory of God. And he compared them to refracted colors. And he talked about an emerald around the throne and so forth. It would appear that we will get a brilliant light show every day in the New Jerusalem. And we're going to read later that there's no reason for the sun or the moon or light to be there. For the Lord God is its light. I want you to think about this comparison between Eden and the holy place or the holy of holies. Because in the holy of holies, there was no light. Outside of the curtain in the holy place was the menorah, the seven branch candle stand that was kept lit perpetually. But inside the curtain, and by the way, that curtain was very thick. Was there any light in there? There wasn't because the Lord God is its light. There's no need for light in there because when the Shekinah glory of God comes down, that's about as bright as you're ever going to get. You don't walk outside on a sunny day and turn your flashlight on, do you? Let me see if I can see, find my keys for the 17th time. You don't need a flashlight because the sun is already doing the job. And in the New Jerusalem, if you want a good suntan, you just get a little closer to the Lord. That's how it works. That's just, I'm just kidding. You won't need one. You'll be in a perfect body. <laughs> Sorry. That wasn't in the notes, and I'm sure you can tell. Anyway, it had, the city had a great and high wall. You're going to see 12 many times with 12 gates, and the gates at the gates were 12 angels. Names were written on them, which are of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. 12, 12, 12. Now, we're going to read about the 12 apostles of the Lamb in a second. And 12 is a very significant number. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. What do you think it could mean? It could speak of wholeness. It could speak of the complete people of God. Um, kind of interesting just to think about. But there are these 12 gates, and there are 12 angels there. The angels are guarding the gates, if you will. And what's interesting is that we did see cherubim, angels, with a flaming sword in Genesis 3.24, and they guard the entrance or access to the tree of life. The tree of life is in the New Jerusalem, 
But now angels are allowing access to those who are part of the kingdom. And so in this case, it would appear that they guard the gates. Zechariah 2.5 says, I declare... I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her. I will be the glory in her midst. Great and high wall, 12 gates. Each of the gates has the names written on them, the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a reminder that God does not give up on the nation of Israel. Why would the names of the tribes be there if they've been replaced by the church? No, God is faithful to his promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All his promises are yes and amen. He will finish what he started. There were three gates on the east, 13, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. That arrangement is reminiscent of the way the 12 tribes camped around the tabernacle in Numbers chapter 2 and of the allotment of tribal lands recorded in Ezekiel 48. The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the apostles of the Lamb. The 12 names of the tribes of Israel are there, and the 12 names of the apostles of the Lamb are there. And some of you who want extra credit tonight are saying, who's the 12th apostle? Huh? Weren't even thinking of it, were you? Is it Matthias? <laughs> Is it Paul? Anyway, we'll find out whose name's there. They're the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And upon the teaching of the apostles and prophets, we have the church. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. One writer says, At the top of each gate was the name of one of the tribes of Israel, at the bottom of each gate was one of the names of one of the apostles. Thus, the layout of the city's gates pictures God's favor on all his redeemed people, both those under the old covenant and those under the new covenant. They will be there. The 12 tribes of Israel, their names are there, the 12 apostles. And we know that they had their foibles and they had their weaknesses, but they don't get in because they were such great people. Although they were mightily used by God, you get in because you're a bride of the Lamb. Amen? That's how you end up there. And so Jesus made promises that they were going to sit on 12 thrones on that day. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. In Ezekiel 40, verse 3, if you want to write this down, it says, He brought me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze with a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. He gave Ezekiel a guided tour of, a, of the restored temple in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. And one author says, the new temple that Ezekiel described symbolizes the new heavens and the new earth or the new Jerusalem. God is going to dwell there. So it is, the, it is though the whole place is the holy of holies. Now, you have read before that there's no temple there. So some people have studied Ezekiel, and they say, well, I see a temple. But then it says, in this place, there's no temple. But it says the Lord is its temple. And the whole place, if you will, becomes the holy of holies because it's like the Garden of Eden restored again, and God's presence is there because sin, the curse, 
and death, all the things that keep us from God and his glory are what? They're gone. So the beauty of what the planet was supposed to be is restored. The city, 16, is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its width. He measured the city with the rod. Uh, most translations have this as 12,000 stadia. If you have a, a New American Standard, it's 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. It is a cube. Some uh, of you who have studied uh, eschatology have seen how they'll place the cube on the sphere of the planet Earth to show you the size of the cube. And it's interesting because in doing some research on the Holy of Holies, and you get a little bit different uh, things on the cubit measurement, but either way, we know the Holy of Holies was a cube. Think about, if you've ever seen pictures of the tabernacle, you know it's more like a rectangular in shape. And the, the whole, you have the holy place, you enter in through one entrance, and you have the outer court, if you will, and then you move closer, and then you get to the holy place, and then you end up at the Holy of Holies, and the dimensions are all the same. The, the height, width, and, and so forth are all the same. They are equal. The Holy of Holies is a perfect cube, and the New Jerusalem is a perfect cube. And do you think there's a message there? I'd say so. And here's the message. The new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem are where God dwells. God's going to be there. So the city is a perfect cube, plenty of room for all. Were the city in these dimensions to be superimposed on the present-day United States, says uh, Henry Morris, it would extend from, the, from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico and from Colorado to the Atlantic Ocean. And he measured its wall. If you have the New American Standard, 72 yards, but I think every other modern translation has 144 cubits. And those of you who are good at your math tables know that when you were doing math, and maybe you did some speed math in elementary school, 12 times 12 is 144. Well, it's interesting to think about all of these 12s again. So we have, he measured the wall, and you have the 144 cubits. According to human measurements, which apparently angels have the same measuring tools as we do, which is also angelic measurements. So if you ever hear about an angel that's six foot two, apparently that's the same as our six foot two. Is that, you guys got that? That wasn't too deep a theology tonight, was it? Anyway, there's some different views on this. Some people think it's the thickness of the wall. Some people think it's the height of the wall. Yet another view says the 144 cubits is a multiple of 12, as also the 12,000 stadia. And perhaps this is a message of wholeness pointing back to God's people and the church and the bride because the city intersects with the bride and the bride is the city in some respect. And 12, and if you take the 12s, you speak of wholeness. And there you go. And the material of the wall was jasper. And the city was pure gold like, have you ever seen something like this? Pure gold, but it was like clear glass. So jasper is something amazing. A precious stone of various colors. Uh, it has some purple, others blue, others green, others uh, the colors of brass. Uh, you might notice the, the city here, pure gold. 
And everything in the Holy of Holies was overlaid with what? With gold. That's uh, Exodus 25. The material of the massive city wall was made out of jasper. It's the same diamond-like stone mentioned in verse 11. It's pure gold like clear glass. This may, be, may not be like any material we've ever seen before. I think we're going to have our mind blown with the colors and the sparkle of this city. It's going to be like if you've ever taken your lady shopping for a diamond and you know how that jeweler is. He, he sets up the black velvet background and he shines every light known to man on that diamond. And it goes, and she's like, and you're like, hold on a minute. Let me see how much money I got. You guys take credit, payment plans. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh hyacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. These are incredible jewels and diamonds, and it's interesting to think about uh, that these precious stones were set in four rows of three on the breastplate of the high priest. And interestingly enough, it was only the high priest who could go into the Holy of Holies and that once a year and that not without blood and the jewels that represent the 12 tribes being close to the heart of God um, they show up again. Some of these names have changed. So some people say there's eight of the 12 in this list and, and maybe it's 12 of 12, but I would tend to think it's 12 of 12. You can do a little bit more study on that. Uh, you can, if you want to see the breast uh, piece of the high priest, read Exodus 28, 17 through 20 and Exodus 39, 10 through 13. Quickly, the foundation stone was jasper, which is previously noted best identified as a diamond. Sapphire is a brilliant blue stone. Chalcedony is an agate stone from Chalcedon region of what is now modern Turkey. It's sky blue in color with colored stripes. The fourth emerald is a bright green stone. The fifth sardonyx is a red and white striped stone. The sixth sardius is a common quartz stone found in various shades of red. The seventh chrysolite is a transparent gold or yellow-hued stone. The eighth is beryl, a stone found in various colors, including shades of green, yellow, blue. The ninth is topaz, a yellow-green stone. The tenth was chrysoprase, a gold-tinted green stone. The eleventh was hyacinth, a blue-violet-colored stone. In John's day, though, the modern equivalent is a red or reddish-brown zircon. The twelfth was amethyst, which is a purple stone. Incredible. Colors in the walls of the city. And then when God's glory shines on the stones, guess what happens? Oh, it's a dazzling light show. It's like nothing you've ever seen before. Have you ever looked up at the stars on a clear night and went, wow. And that's just a lot of white. Can you imagine what this city's going to be like? When you just cruise around for a little bit, the brightly colored stones refract the shining brilliance of God's glory into the panoply of beautiful colors. 
It's a spectrum of dazzling colors flashing from the New Jerusalem throughout the created or renovated universe. If you get to, you know, do you know how uh, sometimes they'll show a, uh, a person who's in space and uh, they're looking back at planet Earth and you see the beautiful blue and, and so forth. Can you imagine if, uh, if it's possible in the New Jerusalem to travel and Henry Morris suggested this in the new tr- Jerusalem with our new bodies and so forth. He thinks that we might have pl- options to travel vertically. Can you imagine? Where do you want to go today? I don't know. Let's go vertical today. We've been going horizontal for the last couple of days. Let's go vertical. There's an ice cream shop up there that I really like. And you get a great view of the new Jerusalem from up there. All right, let's go. <laughs> Can you imagine? Take a, a lick of one of the thousand and however many flavors there are of ice cream there because you don't gain any weight, so it's awesome. You just eat and eat and eat. <laughs> just look at the CD. <laughs> it's good. My idea of heaven right there. <laughs> Isaiah 54, 11 through 13 says, O afflicted ones, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony. Your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of of rubies, your gates of crystal, your entire wall of precious stones. And all your sons will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great. Have you ever been on one of those websites where you look at the homes of the rich and famous? And you might see some gold inlays or incredible chandeliers and things like that. And your first reaction is kind of like this. Oh, jeez, boy, that's some opulence there. What did they spend on that chandelier? Man, I get a new car for that, you know. And, and you're a little bitter. <laughs> but then a thought hits you, you know. I wonder what it'd be like just to take one day in that home, just that bathtub alone is as big as my garage. <laughs> well, I just want to test it, you know. This is an incredible place. It's a brilliant place. There's 12 gates, verse 21, and they are 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. There were, these are the famous pearly gates. There they are. And each one is a giant pearl. Amazing stuff. This new heaven and new earth is indeed the ultimate holy ground. And I saw no temple in it, 22, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. God is its temple. There's no need for a physical structure, if you will, because God is our hiding place. He is my refuge. He is my strength. He is my strong tower. And incredibly, right now, he has made me his Temple. He lives in me and you. Do you believe that? He says, let your light so shine that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. But one day, we're going to be right there in the beauty of this place. People are so worried about silver and gold, silver and gold, but gold is going to be the pavement of this city. It's going to be amazing. And so the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it. 
For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. There's no greater light. The one who is described here made the sun, the moon, and the book of Genesis says, and he made the stars also. <laughs> it's almost like an afterthought. What do you mean he made the stars also? Have you seen the size of those stars? Beetlegees and all of those weird names? They're so huge you can't even begin to even imagine the size of these things. And God just boom, 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 boom. He made the stars and he outshines them all. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, a Jewish expression to say the Father made the sun, moon, and the stars, but the Father of lights you know, makes me think here of the, fa the fact that he is light. God is light, and in him there is what? No darkness at all. It's a place of light, a place of beauty. His amazing light outshines them all, and there, because Jesus Christ is God the Son, there he is, the lamp of the city is the lamb. Violence will not be heard again in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. But you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. No longer will you have the sun for light by day. Nor for brightness will the moon give its light, give you light. But you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will set no more. Neither will your moon wane. For you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be finished. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. That's Isaiah 60, 18 through 21. And the nations shall walk by its light. The kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. And we will be on the inside of this city. I look at today's crime rate and concerns. Uh, if you've ever had stuff stolen out of, your, out of your car or your home broken into, it's a, it's a big time bummer. And the reason is, is because you have this space that you count on. You have your stuff there. And it's hard to imagine that someone would violate that space. But people do. A couple years back, we had a, a man who tried to break into our home. He was, luckily for us, we weren't home. He was caught by our neighbor. Our neighbor saw him, what he was doing, and called the police, and they took him in. And it turned out that, you know, he told the police that he had asked for our permission to go into the backyard. That was interesting because we weren't home. But he had taken something out of my little shed and was trying to... to uh, basically take a, like a crowbar and, and break into my home. Uh, I had a 120-pound uh, shepherd mix. He was Shepherd Great Dane. He almost looked like Scooby-Doo. But he was very friendly, too. So I, I wish I would have had camera footage to know if he was just <laughs> someone to play with or if he was trying to be mean. But anyway. Or if he just went, right, Reggie. I don't know. I, 
I hear that there's some places in the country where people don't lock their doors at night in their cars, and I guess those places exist. But just when you think there's a place you move to that's safe, then something happens because all it takes is one bad apple to spoil your vacation paradise. Well, they, that is the ones streaming into this place, they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, no one who practices abominations, abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This will be a place for the people of God. Now, um, as we move into Revelation 22, I'm just going to read as just uh, to kind of whet our appetite a little bit more about this city, and we'll come back and break this down next time. But I just want to read up to verse 5 because I think the, the ending of here is beautiful. It's, it says, He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. You'll notice it keeps talking about uh, the Father and the Son or the throne of God and the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of this river that flowed out from the throne was the tree of life. It was bearing 12 kinds of fruit. Again, I, I give you that number 12. You can think about how literal to take that. It was yielding its fruit every, what? There's how many months again? There's, there's another 12. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now this is interesting because if this is, some people say this is the eternal state like beyond the millennium. If it is, it's interesting that we seem to have time here because we have a mention of every what? Every month. So if this is the eternal state, it seems weird that there's a mention of a month here because then there's time. So it might be better to see this, and this is what I would lean towards, that this is actually the millennial reign of Christ. There's no longer, there shall no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him. And they, and you might want to just write we there if you're a Christian, we shall see what? His face. His name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night. There shall no, they shall not have need of the light of a lamp nor of the light of the sun. Apparently anybody in the lighting business has gone out of business. Because the Lord God shall illumine them. And they shall reign forever and ever. This is God's word. It's good news, isn't it? There's a remarkable incident that occurred recently at a wedding in England, says one writer. A young man of large wealth and high social position. He had been blinded by an accident when he was 10 years old. He won a bunch of university honors in spite of his blindness he courted and won a beautiful bride, and although he had never looked upon her face, a little while before his marriage, he submitted himself to a course of treatment by experts, and the climax of that treatment was to occur on his wedding day. The day came, the presence, the guests. There were cabinet ministers, generals, bishops, learned men, a large number of fashionable men and women. William Montague Dyke dressed for the altar, his eyes still shrouded in linen, was driven to the church by his father. The oculist met them in the vestry. The bride, Miss Cave, entered the building on the arm of her white-haired father, the admiral, who was all decked out in the blue and gold lace of the quarter deck. So moved was she that she could hardly speak. 
was her lover at last to see her face, the face that others admired, but which he knew only through his delicate fingertips. As she neared the altar, while the soft strains of the wedding march played through the church, her eyes fell on a strange group. Sir William Hart Dyke stood there with his son. Before the latter was the oculist in the act of cutting away the last bandage. William Montague Dyke took a step forward and with the spasmodic uncertainty of one who cannot believe that he is awake, a beam of rose-colored light from a pane in the chancel window fell across his face. But he not, did not seem to see it. Did he see anything? Yes. Recovering in an instance his steadiness of men and with a dignity and joy never seen before on his face, he went forward to meet his bride. They looked into each other's eyes and one would have thought that his eyes would never wander from her face ever again. At last, she said, at last, he echoed solemnly, bowing his head. That was a scene of great dramatic power and no doubt of great joy to both the bridegroom and his bride. It is a suggestion of what will happen one day when we see Jesus Christ. We've been walking through a world of trial, a world that's under a curse, a world of uncertainty and often pain and trial. Now we see in a mirror dimly, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, then we will see what? Face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know even as I am known. And then Paul says, and now abide faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Lord, we thank you for your great love for your church, for your bride. You've gone to prepare a place for her. You've made a promise that if you go and prepare a place for her, you will come again and receive her to yourself that where you are, there she may be also. And we know you've been working on that place, Lord, and we know just from some of these descriptions, it's gonna be a place beyond our imagination. But the most overwhelming thing, the most overwhelming reality, we just read in our Bible and we shall see his face. You know, you told Moses back in Exodus, the one thing he longed for is to see your glory. And you said, no one can see my face and live. But when that time comes, we will peer into the face of God. We will look upon the one who made us in his image. We will look upon the one who was pierced for our transgressions wounded for our iniquities, we will see God. And the beauty of that is we will see you as your bride. We, we will see the one who loved us to the uttermost and loved us to the end, indeed to the end of time. And Lord, because of this great love with which you've loved us, I pray that your saints can find refuge in that love and hope as the anchor of their soul, no matter what they may be facing tonight. I pray that that love would cheer them on. I pray that that hope would anchor them in the storms. And I thank you that one day we will look upon you and you will look upon us and there probably won't need, be a need for words because you've said it all and you've done it all. And we just want to thank you would you just take a moment now as you just meditate on God's word? Let his spirit speak to you about what he wants you to really take away tonight, what he wants you to meditate on, what he wants you to apply or even amend 
Father, help us to be pliable in your hands. If there's any area of our lives that just needs a, a touch, a refreshment, a refining, I just pray you do a, a mighty work in us tonight. We love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?